0: Hey y'all, Oliver here this week. I have an interview with Emily Castor-Warren, who is one of the first employees at Lyft, and then Lime in the policy space. We have an amazing conversation about the history of rideshare and then micromobility, especially as it pertains to regulation, and where regulators and operators are getting it right and wrong. Uh, Emily is working at the moment with Fontanalis, a VC firm investing in the future of mobility. She has some of the deepest experience in the weeds with regulating new mobility, yet at the same time is able to see the massive wider possibility and vision of this new movement. It's a great interview and I hope that you enjoy it. Before we dig in, I want to thank this week's sponsor for the show, Twilio. Shared micromobility is a deceptively hard business. Keep losing your connections to those vehicles and soon you will be out of business. And that's where Twilio comes in. It's a global IoT connectivity platform helping companies like Lime, Skip, Beam, and Spin keep their vehicles connected and cost-effectively help them scale faster, deploy further, and optimize their supply chain. Twilio is also the global leader for SMS and phone verification APIs to reduce fraud and improve compliance. Are you looking for the right global connectivity partner to help scale? Give Twilio a shot. Twilio is offering free SIMs and test credit to MicroMobility podcast listeners. Click the link in the podcast description for more. And with that, here's Emily. And we're back. Uh, We have with us Emily Castawarren. How are you doing, Emily?
1: I'm doing great. Good to be with you.
0: It is very exciting to have you on the call. I uh, I have been following you for well since you were you were at Lyft. Um, I thought uh, when I and I was at Uber, I thought um, this was well this this woman is very smart. She is doing good work, uh, and uh, you were all over Twitter, and it was awesome. Um, so I thought maybe what would be really useful is uh, if you do you want to just explain your background, like how did you end up to to here, uh, right back to what you did at university and all that sort of stuff? I'd love to hear it.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's funny because I don't think if you'd asked me when I was in college uh, whether I would ever end up working for a technology company specializing in transportation policy that I would have uh, you know, told you there was a very good chance of that. I was a, a women's and gender studies major in college and was kind of a political activist for feminist causes and immediately went and worked on Capitol Hill in Washington after I graduated from school. And, um, so, you know, in that sense, I was immediately engaged in policy, um, But, you know, really didn't have any involvement in the the private sector or certainly in the technology industry. But over time, as my career in public service evolved, I began to be exposed to transportation policy through that 40,000-foot level at which the federal government engages. So as a legislative aide to a member of Congress, I would receive meetings from representatives that came in from our uh, Congresswoman's district who were representing transit agencies and representing planning agencies and local government who were trying to get federal grants to build major transportation and infrastructure projects. So I started to become familiar with how that traditional system worked. And then, you know, several steps down the road after I had uh, worked on some political campaigns, gone back to grad school and gotten a master's in public finance, I was working in San Francisco, uh, working for state and local governments as a financial advisor, structuring bond deals, which frankly, I Think is a little dull. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, however, it's something that's indispensable to infrastructure, right? So I was yes. still really involved in the guts of how cities and states and uh, government agencies were trying to put together these projects that would serve public mobility needs. Um, and I was doing that in San Francisco at a time when technology platforms were really just starting to bloom with this idea of shared. Peer-to-peer marketplaces for goods and services. It was the moment in 2011 when Airbnb had blown up, and there suddenly was an explosion of startups for sharing just about anything you could imagine, from your your lawnmower to you know services like Task getting rid of stuff that was in your garage, and of course transportation. And two of the first startups that um, were around in that regard were Get Around, the peer-to-peer car-sharing company, and some of its peers um, like. Like relay Rides, which is now Turo. Um, and then Zimride, which was a carpooling platform at the time for college students to get home on spring break and other long trips like that. And I was totally in love with this idea that you could find more efficient ways to use these wasteful, personally-owned cars that were sitting parked on the side of the street and instead allow for them to be made available to other people who needed to to get around, whether that was to rent a car um to use to drive themselves or to use an empty seat in someone else's car on a trip that was already happening like they were doing with Zimride. So I became really excited about that idea, quit my job in public finance, And in the course of a few months, in the beginning of 2012, immersed myself in all the startups that were in that space in San Francisco. I even started an event series about it called Collaborative Chats, because at that time we were calling it Collaborative Consumption. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. Robin Chase. Yeah, 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 Absolutely.
1: Yeah, there was actually a woman named Rachel Botsman uh, in Australia who wrote a book about collaborative consumption, which I think is where that name came from. Unfortunately, that name didn't win the day. So I think the sharing economy is how it's more commonly known these days. Um, But that was really my my gateway drug and how I got to know Lyft's founders, um, who then brought me in when I got to know them right at the time that they launched Lyft to be one of the original employees on that team.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And then, um, so you were at Lyft for for how long?
1: Five years and, uh, seven months or five and a half years, somewhere in there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So that would have been like an incredible period of growth. Cause I mean, I imagine five years mm-hmm. ago, well, sorry, at the start of that journey, you would have been relatively small. Um, so just for context as well, like what sort of level of, how many cities when you started, how many cities when you ended, if, if you can give that, that sort of context?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I literally started the day that Lyft started operating in San Francisco, in its first market. So wow. the okay. beginning, um, I took a ride with the first Lyft driver on the first day of Lyft operations. Shout out to wow. Shannon. Um, yeah. <laughs> and awesome. I was the second person that they brought in to work on Lyft along with a, a small team of three or four other people that were already at Zimride. And Lyft was an experiment within the company. So they brought in myself and one other person to work with a, a few designers, engineers, and John and Logan to develop everything that was needed for the platform in the early days. And I had a million different hats. And over time, of course, we grew from that one market up to hundreds of markets and uh, thousands of employees by the time that I left two years ago in
0: 2017. Cool. And and with the... Um the, well okay actually, we can, we can come back to the regulatory questions around ride hailing as well because i think that 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 parallels from there you went on and we're doing some work in the autonomy space with the world economic forum and then you joined uh lime and you were for lime for about a year so i'd love to hear from your perspective what was the the decision making process that you went through to go and join lime um also kind of re- i'm i'm aware you joined them kind of also relatively early
1: sure so over the time that I worked at Lyft, I had the opportunity to carve out a portfolio for myself. In this area that I called transportation policy, which really meant that I was an ambassador to all of the third-party stakeholders in the government and nonprofit and academic world outside of Lyft who cared about the impacts of ride hailing on cities, on the environment, and on society. And tried to be, you know, really be a student of understanding those impacts and engaging in a credible way to make sure that ride hailing was advancing the public interest. That was my. passion. I wasn't there just to try to, you know, get rich at a startup. Uh, I was there because I believed that ride hailing could help catalyze a shift away from car ownership. That's something I'm very passionate about helping to achieve in the world because I believe car ownership has a cascading set of negative effects from the environment to public safety and beyond. And so I did everything that I could to help advance that public interest purpose at Lyft. And by the time that I left in 2017, clearly these platforms had matured to the point where they were viable. They were going to survive. And, um, they were somewhat self-propelled. And it became important then to start thinking about, okay, if ride-hailing is one piece of how we get people uh, to give up their cars, what are the other pieces? Because at the end of the day, we actually want to get people out of cars. We don't just want to get them to give up owning one, but we also want to reduce the total number of vehicle miles traveled on the roads and the emissions and public safety impacts that are associated with that, whether it's a ride-hailing vehicle or a personally-owned vehicle. And so, I had already left Lyft at that point and was, you know, as you mentioned, working with the World Economic Forum, looking for opportunities to um, find other ways to advance that public interest purpose. And that was when the scooter boom really started in uh, the beginning of 2018. And it was tremendously exciting to me because I thought that here we had a type of vehicle that was zero emission, that did not cause congestion because it could travel in the bike lane, um, that was help to uh, introduce riders to active transportation generally to to bikes to scooters and to experiencing infrastructure for active transportation, which is so desperately needed in cities and help build a political constituency for that. So I thought that was all really exciting and would actually, in many ways, be um, a clearer fit with the objectives of many city departments of transportation than ride hailing was, which obviously has been very contentious with cities and, it, it ha- and many cities what? feel that it has- I mixed- never
0: noticed. <laughs> yeah.
1: Shocking, <laughs> right? I'm sure you never experienced that at, at Uber. Um, so, you know, cities weren't sure that ride hailing was a good thing. I believe that it is on net, but I think that it's more obvious to, to them that there's a positive role to be played by bikes and scooters. And so um, it seemed worthy to me to be a part of helping to forge the regulatory landscape for that new mode.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly exciting. And so you were with them for about a year. Um, I I would love to get your 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 thoughts on how you think the regulatory landscape has shifted from when you joined Lime through the 18 or 20 months or so to now um and and do you you know just in terms of what it was and and that kind of that early optimism because I certainly I, I agree with you I think there was a lot of stuff that was really exciting um to how you think that cities are thinking about it now
1: it is fascinating to have this side-by-side comparison of experiences from ride-hailing um, to scooters, because in many ways, it felt like scooters was sort of a, an incredibly compressed uh, version of what we experienced with ride-hailing, where it all happened much bigger, much faster. And that led to a pretty chaotic environment and an extremely rapid timeline of proliferation of this technology compared to what we experienced with Uber and Lyft. So, um, certainly, when Scooters first came on the scene, you know, right on the heels of the initial introduction of dockless bikes in a lot of uh, markets, uh, cities were optimistic and I think they were receptive to trying this out. And in fact, they were enthusiastic about having the opportunity to get another shot at governing shared mobility, right? We know a lot of cities were pissed off, frankly, about how things went down with Uber and Lyft. They felt like they got cut out of the equation because there was so much preemption of local authority at the state level. And so with scooters and bikes coming on the scene, cities said, great, we're going to get it right this time. We see a place for this in our cities and we're going to experiment with it. Um, But, We're going to have it on our terms, right? And I think over the last year and a half, two years, what that has meant is that while the initial introduction of small-scale deployments of these devices into a very large number of markets was possible to achieve very quickly because of that, that appetite from cities, scaling up the size of that presence in a lot of markets, in particular in North America, I would say that's slightly... Uh, less true in some of the European uh, markets where they've allowed larger scale deployments. Um, but, but really, a- a- across the board, we're seeing that because cities have asserted themselves so strongly in muscular regulation of the presence of scooters, they are not allowing unchecked growth by those companies in the way that occurred with Lyft and Uber. And that means that these companies are in a lot of places really fast, but they aren't necessarily going to be able to deliver on the long-term growth trajectory that they may have promised their investors on which such incredible amounts of capital were invested and such enormous valuations were assigned in in such a short period of time.
0: Yeah. I I remember you and I having that chat uh, after you left Lyman and just I think, in some ways, that really manifested itself in safety. And the the, the one example that I can kind of give has been um, in Auckland, New Zealand. There was a there was a wheel locking issue that came up, and I think it was due to firmware. I, I don't exactly know what it was, um, but the effectively um, Lime globally was like, uh, we're just trying to work out what it is, but it continued to deploy scooters. Auckland Council eventually said, no, no, get these scooters off the streets. Um, they did. Uh, but it really kind of soured the relationship at a local level uh, and they've just lost their permit in the in, the, in this latest in this latest round um, and that was quite a large operation like I think there was 1800 or 2,000 scooters or something like that um so you know for it's considered to be quite a large city and and there's this there's a sort of mismatch between that I could see between you know uh, as you say huge amount of capital, bunch of promises to investors and at the same time, uh, you know, going to cities and saying like, oh yeah, cool. We're, we'd like to deploy another 4,000 scooters in your city. Um, and them just saying, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> you know, do you, going forward six or 12 months from now, how do you think the industry is going to be, d- d- going to be looking at this? I and mean, what, what's something, th- things that you, you sort of seem almost like inevitable in terms of predictable, uh, predictability?
1: Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head in mentioning some of the safety issues associated with the hardware that these companies have deployed. And the fact that some of the initial optimism, both by companies and their investors, was associated with perhaps a a fallacious assumption that the growth trajectory they would experience would resemble that of a software company. Right? Uber and Lyft are software platforms who were performing a, you know, digital matching service for drivers and passengers in real time, but they didn't have fleets, they didn't have operations and maintenance responsibilities. And running that kind of an on the ground hardware logistics business is a very different thing. And I think at this point, it's fair to say that most of the scooter operators have, operators have realized that and been somewhat chastened by it, right? And their investors are realizing that now that they they see the numbers coming out of these operations over the course of a sustained period of time. And so there's a bit of a reality check that, in fact, you can't just, uh, you know, scale this up with this same kind of... um. You know, economies of scale and incredible margins that may have been present, um, or the opportunity for such, with with Uber and Lyft. And so there's a gut check that that's happening as these companies actually figure out how do they make their economics work, how do they make their product last longer on the street, and from the perspective of cities, um, you know, how can they make sure that these companies that really grew up so quickly um, out of the culture of Silicon Valley and the software industry, actually know how to safely operate and maintain a fleet of devices um, that is now uh, you know, in the hands of millions of members of the public with significant safety consequences. So I think you'll see um, that there's this increasing focus now, um, you know, from both cities and companies on trying to button down their operation, deliver a, a superior, longer lasting product um, that is more durable and, you know, and on the part of cities to get much more sophisticated about what they demand with respect to um, the uh, quality of the product that's being offered and the safety standards that they have for that product. Um, and you know, looking in much more detail at the the performance of these devices and delivering on, um, those public interest objectives.
0: Yeah. The, um, the one um, market that I think has actually done this exceedingly well has been Germany, um, because they, they just banned all scooters (laughs) until May of this year. And then they developed a very German standard, which was, you know, this is how the scooters are going to be, and they're going to have batteries in the bottom, and they're going to have um, lights, and they're going to have, you know, non-grippy floorboards. Um, but a couple of interesting points. They made them have mechanical brakes. They had to have, they had to have, That um, they had a speed limit of, of 20 kilometers per hour. Um, and they were, they, they. you know, when you ride them in Germany, they're just solid. They're good quality, hard. Nice scooters um, compared to, for example, of the Segway ES4s that get deployed in other places, which are really sort of like consumer toys um, and are still getting deployed on the streets in a lot of cities around the world. Um, so I agree. There was an, um, so actually, Joe Krauss came and talked in Berlin, Joe Krauss, the head of Lime, um, and he said, um, he made a call to the industry uh, when he was at the, in Berlin and he said, look, we need to work together on hardware standards. And I think it's really a wrap, to your point around getting something that emerges in that space that um, we can say, this is a basic quality of vehicle that we need to have. Because um, I, I agree with you around the safety. I am really curious um, whether or not you think that these larger, you know, Lyman, Bird, and some of the other larger funded scooter companies are going to be viable businesses in the next uh, 12, to 12 to 18 months. Because in some ways, I look at this and say, this is way better play for like a trans dev or a large, um, you know, infrastructure or these, these strike me like as like buses and trains, you know, you're going to have the same funding model. We're going to get to that point and we'll say we want them in our cities. They are important. They need to be matched with infrastructure, et cetera. Um, But they're not particularly well matched for capital, like from venture, from the venture capital industry, which is looking for, you know, as you say, these, these, these software returns.
1: I do think that there will be a contraction in terms of the market presence of scooter companies, and you already see it looking at uh, you know Lyft and jump I think have made some announcements about pulling out of um, of markets Lyft may have pulled out of you know six scooter markets that are mostly in lower density North American cities uh, in the last couple of weeks that is not surprising to me at all. Those are probably areas where there's not the density of demand to really support a, a high level of utilization of these kinds of devices for for short trips because, you know, they are long travel distances generally um, in lower low density environments like that and really high rates of car ownership, lower usage of active transportation generally. So I would bet that some of these... Um, Expansion markets where the companies have have shown up really rapidly are going to drop off of the list as they bleed out uh, money in in places where they just can't be profitable. And the companies will refocus their businesses more intensively on very large cities where there's a high mode share of of non, uh, you know, personally owned vehicle transportation and where the trip distances are shorter. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think um, in terms of the viability of these companies, it's always seemed to me that it made sense for bike and scooter services to be offered as one mode within a multimodal shared mobility platform like an Uber or a Lyft, where the objective of the company is a bigger picture desire to um, get Customers to be subscribers of all in one mobility services. And clearly, you know, Uber and Lyft have both articulated their ambitions in this regard. They are increasingly incorporating several different kinds of transportation into their platforms, whether it's, uh, you know, their traditional ride hailing services or now um, transit directions and ticketing and bikes and scooters. They want to be a one stop shop. And For them, it's helpful to have bikes and scooters, and it will probably continue to be helpful to have um, that kind of a high-volume, low-cost product inside their app to attract people almost as a loss leader, um, and to some extent as a way of engendering goodwill with the cities where they operate, uh, where they have very important regulatory relationships. So I think these modes will continue to exist within those larger mobility platforms. Bigger question is, will it continue to exist as an independent business with companies like Lime and Bird that are, that are not part of those platforms? I'm more skeptical of that. I have a viewpoint that it's more likely to lead to consolidation, ultimately, where those uh, independent companies become part of larger transportation platforms. Um, I suppose one could argue that they could launch additional modes themselves. But I think it's very late to try to get into the ride-hailing business. And so those companies would have a lot of challenge in trying to become another Uber or Lyft themselves. It's more likely that they would be absorbed. Um, The one counterpoint I would present to that is that in the scooter business, unlike Uber and Lyft, As we discussed previously, the the city regulators have the ability to contain the scale of the presence of these companies, and they have the ability to assign permits through competitive processes to to smaller operators. And so it is possible that that kind of um, a regulatory dynamic could prop up some of these independent operators for a longer period of time, or even accrue to the benefit of very small local domestic Scooter operators in places like, like some of the European countries where we see a strong preference for having a non-Silicon Valley company, maybe a, you know, a domestic French or German company offering this service, um, instead of, Having, you know, Lime or Bird come in and and offer that. So, so that may keep some of these operators as independent, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of the cities themselves tried to start getting into this business because ultimately, if we see it being offered as a turnkey solution by, you know, by other outside providers, um, you know, whether it's a more traditional transportation uh, logistics operator like a transdev or, or somebody newer like um, a company I advise, Super Pedestrian, that, that does offer a kind of a full stock solution um, for, for scooter operations. There's no reason why you couldn't see a scooter off, uh, system that's being operated by a city, especially if it's one that doesn't have sustainable unit economics and needs to be subsidized in order to continue to exist.
0: Well, this is, so this is precisely where I think, um, I, I'm, I'm really glad you went here because the subsidy question, you know, I, I think there are a lot of cities who are going to turn around and say, you know, that, um, we want this, it increases our first last mile connections for all of our, tra- you know, all of our, our larger transport systems that we already spend a lot of money on, it drives people towards our buses and our trains, um, it gets people off the street, it's a low cost infrastructure option. A lot of cities would be saying, like, we want this. Um, And so I'm, you know, uh, public transport funding is an incredibly slow moving beast. And so it's, you know, it's not like you're going to turn around and probably be able to free up funding in the next year or two years. But it's something that in five years time I could see them turning around and saying, yeah, we want to support and subsidize um, shared systems like this. But that does um, lead me actually to the next kind of part of this, because I think if that's the timeframes that we're moving on, and that's the um, the vehicle, you know, th- that we're going to end up with something, but it's going to be five years and the caps are still going to be relatively small. And yet we see all this massive latent demand that's sitting there of people saying like, no, I just want to be able to get around my city. That's why I'm incredibly bullish on the, on the owned micromobility space. Um, just because I think, look, the vehicles aren't that expensive. People are going to just go out and buy their own thing, whatever it is, a boosted, you know, a boosted scooter or like a e-bike. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective, about how cities are going to look at that if they think, okay, in some ways we've got the shared micromobility thing down, we feel like we've nailed it in terms of regulation. Uh, You know, that's interpretable however people want to interpret it. But um, if the vehicles are already coming, how are cities do you think going to react to this shift um, of just having, look, there are going to be vehicles coming. We're going to have these things um, coming regardless.
1: I don't think cities will be able to do much about the fact that people are increasingly buying these devices for their own um, personal use. And, you know, on a personal ownership basis, you can take a bike or a scooter and ride it around most of these markets. Sometimes it's in a regulatory gray area because of how it it might be classified by that state. But those are laws that are not enforced, Um, you know, whether class three electric bikes are technically allowed in the state of Massachusetts or not. I had one when I lived there, and I never heard it from anyone about it. Um, so, you naughty. <laughs> you know, I think that that, that personal ownership population is actually going to grow really quickly because as people are getting the opportunity to try bikes and scooters for the first time from these shared mobility services, they try it. They say, this is awesome. Why can't I get this in my neighborhood? I tried it in this other city, right? I'm able to use it when I'm downtown. Why, why can't I use this every day? And as you've mentioned, the caps that cities are allowing, um, for, Shared mobility services, um, you know, with bikes and scooters are very low. They're not sufficient really to supply the demand in the market. Many of the largest uh, markets in North America are refusing to allow scooters um, to this day, you know, at any scale, including, Mm -hmm. um, New York and Boston. And so, you know, with that, sort of suppression of um, satisfaction of the natural level of demand that would exist for a shared mobility business model of bike and scooter provision. I think that um, that personal ownership will kind of uh, step in as, as the alternative that people use to get that need met. Um, that being said, I think that they will actually you know content that will not mean that there is a diminishing demand for um for cities to actually permit the growth of shared bikes and scooters i think the more that people own these devices the more that they will want them also to be ubiquitously available um, i mentioned that i own an electric bike myself i use it all the time for getting around oakland and berkeley um but as someone who doesn't own a car i very often am taking trips that have Several different segments. And I might leave my house on foot or on the train, and then later in the day be somewhere else and want to get around using a, a bike or scooter, and I don't have mine with me. And mm-hmm. I'm already someone who, you know, by, by owning one myself. Um, and like really convinced that that's something I want to use. I like to use and we'll use it if it's available to me. And, um, if, if we could ever get those Lyft e-bikes available in, in Oakland and Berkeley, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> oh,
0: hopefully it's oh, man.
1: sore subject, right? But hopefully they're oh, coming soon. Yeah. Um, you know, I would use that as well. So I think this is all about, um, creating a, a new, um, Population of consumers who want to use this mode, and once they're in that bucket, once they've experienced it, they love it. They they want to use it in various forms. They're gonna try to own it. They're gonna try to rent it. They're trying. They're gonna try to participate in that ecosystem in a variety of different ways, and that will accrue to the benefit both of the shared mobility um, services as well as to the private ownership market.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the I, I wanted to um, ask so. Post lime, you uh, have been working with Fontanalis, if I if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which as I understand is the the Ford uh, family's private well, Like it's a it's the uh, venture capital venture capital group, and, and you're doing um, work with them or advising around regulatory investments because they do predominantly mobility investments. I'm really curious on your th- thoughts. Um, having kind of been on the inside of that industry now a little bit and understanding, okay, this is how investors are thinking about it. um, How they are thinking about this interplay between, you know, hey, we're about to go, dump a bunch of money into anything in the in, in mobility space, um, and then the, the kind of how cities are regulating and thinking about this um, from a policy perspective. Um, do you, I mean, The sense that I get from this conversation so far is they're starting to wake up to the fact that you can't just go and dump a lot of uh, scooters and expect it to scale really quickly. Um, any, any other sort of insights um, that you think in terms of what they're learning at the moment and they're going through in the last year or so?
1: Sure. So, Font um investing c- exclusively in the transportation space. So they are keenly aware of how important cities and you know regulation generally are to the success of any new transportation related business model. And for that reason, I think have an appropriate degree of caution around the scooter business because uh, you know as you you can see there was a huge investor. In, uh, enthusiasm for all of the scooter operators. When they first came on the scene, a ton of money was poured in. And then I think it's it's fair to say that there have been a lot of bumps in the road and those business models are not just as unequivocally rosy as they were first thought to be. And so um, that is a key role that I play when we're looking at any new prospective investment, um, especially ones that are going to require approval from cities in order to have the ability to operate. And that really means any kind of, you know, commercial passenger transportation service that would operate on city streets uh, using the public right of way. um, You know, they're going to look very closely at how will cities receive this? Will cities see this service as delivering on their public interest goals? Um, Will they Want to create a regulatory framework to accommodate this new service, if it um, is, you know, introduced onto their streets? Because I think it's pretty clear now from the um, the experience of cities with Uber and Lyft, and then with bikes and scooters, that cities are paying attention. They're no longer asleep at the wheel. They are going to demand a muscular regulatory presence in governing any new kind of mobility business model that shows up on their streets and there's not going to be any of this operating in a gray area for months or years at a time that we saw in the early days of ride hailing and so um, investors need to have some confidence that there will actually be acceptance and willingness on the part of cities to to collaborate in creating that path forward
0: and that's actually okay so yes we're I see the biggest challenge is actually around infrastructure adaptation, uh, especially in the micromobility space. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to regulators uh, here in New Zealand, but also offshore. And the big thing that we are trying to go through is, um, okay, cool. We we absolutely see that these vehicles are coming, these new, these new micromobility vehicles. But for us to adapt our infrastructure is a 10-year program. Like this is, and even, it might even be longer. And if you look at historically, you know, um, you know, roading, roading infrastructure, when we uh, introduced the car was something that took a long time to go and build out. I'm, uh, I'm also curious about things like thoughts on micromobility autonomy. Um, are these, uh, uh, or, or as you say, this, this question that we have around, um, Enforcement around uh, particular e-bikes, you know, a Type Three e-bike versus a Type Two versus a Type One, and how we're and how we're going to see that. Um, what are the challenges that you see that are forthcoming um, in a wider sense for for um, for micromobility regulation?
1: Sure. So a couple of things. First on infrastructure, you're absolutely right that you know, it takes cities a long time to actually get the funding and the, uh, the construction processes in place to upgrade the infrastructure to accommodate a major new influx of transportation behavior, um, into a new mode like bikes or scooters that, that are increasing demand for, um, active transportation infrastructure facilities. Um, you know that being said they want to do that right like cities aren't going to go kicking and screaming on creating a whole bunch of new bike lanes they already want to create a bunch of new bike lanes so i think they do feel a sense of optimism and alignment with the fact that these companies are ask are are really trying to help them achieve their goals um they you know whatever skepticism they might have about bikes and scooters um from a sort of regulatory perspective, I don't think that that extends to any reticence around creating the infrastructure that would allow them to be successful because to date, the companies have j- simply been asking for more of the same kind of bike infrastructure that cities already were working on building for traditional bicycles. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that puts them in really close alignment with with what the industry is seeking. It would be interesting if that started to change you know, For example, if we saw industry trying to put forward new vehicle types, larger micromobility vehicle types that start to blur the categories a little bit and you know, challenge the question of how big of a thing should be in a bike lane. Because there's certainly a lot of appeal to companies in offering a product that doesn't have to sit in traffic along with all of the regular cars and trucks you know, as a customer, it's great um, to be able to travel in your own lane. And there's an argument for doing that if it's a low speed device. But, you know, what if it's really wide and, you know, such that it would block other bicycles being able to pass you? You know, what is the place where you draw the line around what fits in those lanes and I think we're clearly seeing a lot of iteration in the vehicle types that entrepreneurs are coming forth with right now and that if they really start to push the envelope on that it could become a little bit more contentious with cities than it has been to date about what part of the infrastructure these devices should use.
0: I'm really thinking um, very specifically about the bird cruiser, because I think, you know, that's one of these, oh, that's pretty blurring the lines between a moped and a a bike, right? If it's got pegs, it's a moped. If it's got pedals, it's a bike. And this is weird.
1: I mean, that one doesn't concern me so much. I mean, if I were in a city, I'd be a little bit more worried about sort of width and weight and speed. And as long as it's fairly well aligned with bicycles and kick scooters along those parameters, I think it would be appropriate. But when you start looking at things that, you know, are designed to shelter the passengers from rain or accommodate cargo or multiple, uh, customers, you know, right now we have cargo bikes, electric cargo bikes, which are awesome sure. and I think are appropriate to have in in bike lanes. But what if you start scaling that up a little bit? What if it starts to look a little bit more like a golf cart? Then what is right. that thing, right?
0: Yes. I'm thinking that there's also the... V- have you seen the Vimo from uh, California... Oh, sorry, from uh, Vancouver? So, it's a fully covered electric tricycle um, and they classified as an e-bike because you have to pedal it but it's pretty much it's yeah. like it's a big vehicle I yeah no I hate yeah. on that one but uh, you very- know
1: from a just a clearly like kind of blue sky perspective those kinds of devices could be really helpful to cities in getting people to give up combustion engine vehicles, get them into a lighter weight, more sustainable device that's more similar to a bike and, and a, that's something that they can use in all types of weather, um, with children, with groceries, some of these other things that are the limitations currently of bikes and scooters. So there's a public interest objective of uh, alongside, you know, trying to find a place for those kinds of vehicles, but it's not clear right now, where they should travel in the public right of way.
0: Yeah absolutely. And I am really curious um, you, you have done work with uh, autonomy I mean you, you were helping lead the, the World Economic Forum uh, efforts in, in, in autonomy and, and that's for automobile autonomy but micromobility mobility autonomy uh, is this something that you, that you you have any view on whatsoever do you think it's going to be a thing? how quickly do you think it'll move faster than uh, traditional automobile autonomy and how would you think about it from a policy perspective?
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, When I think about these scooters piloting themselves around on the sidewalk to reposition themselves, it sounds to me like something that most cities will not tolerate very quickly. Um, You know, ultimately, maybe we'll get to that place. It would be surprising to me if there were a lot of cities that allowed it to happen anytime soon. Just look at the response that we saw from most cities regarding sidewalk delivery robots. That is really what I would look to as the example of how they're going to feel about autonomous scooters positioning themselves on the right of way. It's something that is going to cause a lot of pedestrian safety concerns. Um, If it's trying to travel in the bike lane instead of on the sidewalk, it's going to cause a lot of concerns from cyclists this thing is going to have to deliver on a high degree of safety and and accuracy in order to avoid creating conflicts for those vulnerable road users with whom it's traveling on either the sidewalk or in the bike lane. I think cities and uh, local advocates will be very worried about that. And so while I certainly can see why if it worked, it would be a way to help make the business models of scooter companies more viable, um, I think they're going to have to, you know, perfect it to a very high degree before they would be allowed to deploy it at any substantial scale. And I'm not going to hold my breath.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Uh, We've had we've had uh, Dimitri Shevlenko from uh, Tortoise uh, on the podcast and uh, others who are in the space who, who look, I'm 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 slightly more bullish, but uh, I hear you. You know, I I'm tempered, of course, by all of these things. I think the deployment in places like exurban areas, where you have, what you know, not in like obviously in downtowns or anything where you've got high pedestrian counts, but actually places that are further out, where all of a sudden you can start servicing. Um, but and if those you've places got re-
1: where micromobility wouldn't be viable at all, like where that's there are I mean. these kind so, of short so trip types.
0: W- well, you wouldn't. It might be that you wouldn't necessarily have. A lot of trip types that would necessarily function in that space but for something like a you know if you had an e-bike out in a suburb that could relocate itself um, or become an on-demand vehicle um, and you were operating on it like with dedicated areas that you've worked with the regulators on and said like these are the spaces that we know that you know we feel safe with these, these things operating and they're low speed so they never operate more than about sort of seven miles an hour and they're low weight um, and they're tele you know, backup and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I could see that being something that the regulators would be open to looking at whether or not that becomes a viable service and can scale very quickly. And therefore, as, you know, it kind of captures the same amount of excitement around venture capital. Um, that's a, that I think is a very valid and open question. Um, Hmm.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I think one thing I certainly (laughs) learned from my experience developing pilot projects with cities and transit agencies when I was at Lyft is that there are always going to be some more adventurous local governments, especially in places that are... A little bit friendlier to business that maybe have more of a a dearth of transportation options, like you're saying, places that are out, you know, in the peripheries, small suburban environments, small cities that have nimble local governments, uh, maybe in some red states. Those are the kinds of folks that are going to be interested in experimenting with um, with these services. Those also happen to be the places where there's less demand for these kinds of services and they're less financially viable. So it's hard to really make. a sustainable business case in those places but maybe they can serve as proving grounds and technical um, you know sort of test beds for for these technologies to get them to work to the level of performance that would be required for any larger denser city to really accept them
0: yeah. Good. Oh no, I'm glad. I, I I I love this discussion. Uh and look, finally, um, I'm a little bit starting to run up against time, so I just wanted to ask you for for you. I mean, you have obviously been in and helped build up, uh, some some very interesting businesses in the mobility space. Um, coming at it from a policy perspective, which I actually think, as you say, as we get more and more into this, um, I think that's going to become Even more important than it already is in terms of being able to like intelligently work with cities for entrepreneurs who are coming into the space who want to be thinking about mobility uh, businesses, either on the hardware side or on the services side or in the software play around around all this stuff. um, What would you what would you be encouraging them to think about? Um, and and um, take into consideration as they as they look to build for these things.
1: I think that they have to take very seriously the level of regulatory leverage that cities will have over their deployment, and, and prioritize upfront doing outreach to cities to build empathy for what goals those cities have. Because if the city doesn't feel like your product. Is advancing their goals and has positive impacts. You're pretty much going to be dead before you get out the gate. Um, we're not in an era where cities will take a backseat and let these um, services, you know, roll out, you know, unfettered. So um, build partnerships early on, develop empathy, and see how your tool um, can really be an instrument for that city to achieve its goals. And then think about you know, how you can outline a creative regulatory pathway, you know, if you require the creation of a new category in order for your business to be able to operate because the existing rules just don't work, as is often the case for these new kinds of business models and device types, um, you need to inspire regulators to want to work with you to create that pathway and, and you know, lay out a roadmap for them around um, what that could look like such that you could actually be a viable business while appropriately, uh, you know, protecting the concerns and goals that, that they have, um, that are their duty, um, as public servants.
0: Love it. Well, look, uh, Emily, this has been the most, uh, this has been a wonderful chat. I've been, <laughs> you are really as, uh, as, as amazing in person as you are on Twitter. So, um, th- thank you very much <laughs> for your, uh, Thank you very much for, for um, coming on. Um, if people want to follow you along on Twitter, how do they, where, where do they find you?
1: Yeah, it's at Emily C. Warren underscore. Blame it on my husband because I had to <laughs> swap my, my nice clean um, at Emily Castor Twitter handle when I got married. I'm very yeah. Googleable at Emily Castor Warren and I look forward to seeing you on the interwebs.
0: Excellent. All right, well, thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Oliver. Have a great day.